In uncertain times, students seek truth. Your donation brings the Catholic intellectual tradition to elite universities. Act by December 31st, and your gift doubles, matched by up to $100,000. Go to thomisticinstitute.org forward slash light of truth to illuminate minds this Christmas. That's thomisticinstitute.org forward slash light of truth. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The title of this talk is Faith, Mysticism, and the Dark Night of the Soul. In contemporary Catholic spirituality, it seems to me, people are often very interested in this subject, especially if you talk about mysticism and the dark night of the soul. And I think sometimes contemporary Catholics can get very attracted by this idea, or perhaps even tied up in it, in a way that as a confessor and a spiritual director, I think sometimes priests find, you know, to be maybe overemphasized. And yet, it does seem to express some important reality about the spiritual life, about the Christian life, about how to grow in the spiritual life. And so what I'm hoping to do this evening is to talk a little bit about these ideas and to situate them in a proper theological framework, to understand them as a part of the structure, you might say, of how God reveals himself and draws us to himself. So maybe we could start off by, uh, you know, looking at some of the wrong emphases or overemphases that sometimes are found in contemporary uh, spiritual circles. Sometimes people get very interested in extraordinary phenomena, like visions, or interior locutions, or other extraordinary spiritual experiences, miracles, or something similar. In fact, today, here at the University of Dallas, as you know, the relics of Padre Pio were available for veneration in the chapel, and many, many people come to see them. Padre Pio, in his own lifetime, of course, had lots of extraordinary phenomena associated with him, and that drew a lot of attention. And some of it was good, and some of it, Padre Pio himself would tell you, was bad and unhelpful and actually kind of a cross for him. Uh, that he had the stigmata was physically painful, but it also was painful in the sense that it made him an object of kind of, it made him like an attraction that people wanted to figure out and also drew a lot of um, I think, skeptical examination, even from his superiors. But I think there's another problem, uh, maybe lurking slightly beneath or behind this one, and it's a much more common problem because most of us don't struggle with the difficulty of having too many extraordinary spiritual experiences and then, you know, having uh, attention drawn to us because of the extraordinary things that, are, that God is doing in our, in our presence or in our midst or through us. Although maybe you'd like that. I mean, maybe that's secretly why you're at this talk. I don't know. You have to examine your own conscience there. Uh, how can I be a mystic? And well, do you want to go through the dark night of the soul? The more we talk about it, maybe you'll say, ah, you know, no thank you. <laughs> but there's another problem, and it's much more common. And it's to emphasize growth in the spiritual life or to judge it on a scale of interior experiences, often using a very emotional or psychological register. Rather than understanding the spiritual life as something truly supernatural, and the supernatural actually transcends the register of our emotions and even of our psychology. Now, many people find this very confusing because so much spiritual writing 
and literature has dealt with our own experiences, our like interior experiences. And we think about that and we look at the saints who had things like that and people can find it very confusing and don't know what to do with all of this. So that's part of what I'm hoping to address and maybe try to clear up a little bit in this talk. The Carmelite tradition is famous for talking about these interior experiences or sort of focusing on the inner life and the experiences of the inner life. But in fact, if you get to know the two greatest Carmelite saints who wrote in this tradition, really the, the, the huge towering pillars of this tradition, St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, you would discover that they were actually very scholastic and in fact, very Thomistic. Most people don't realize just how much that's so, but if you're a Thomist and you begin to read them, uh, it jumps off the page at you. It's very clear. So Teresa of Avila, just for context, she uh, lived in the 16th century, both her and John of the Cross did. Uh, her, her dates are 1515 to 1582. She had, as her prized spiritual director and confessor in Avila, a great figure in the history of Thomism, the Spanish Dominican Domingo Banez. And she wrote her famous autobiography, Her Life, which is a spiritual classic, at the instigation of Father Banez. And she repeatedly refers to him in the book. He was its theological censor, you know, as it was going to be published. Is this worthy of publication? He recommended it be published. Later, he defended her and advocated for her, advocated for her holiness. He's a, a major figure in the life of Teresa of Avila, although often not well known. Uh, that fact is often not well known. Domingo Banez is not, not well enough known either. If you don't know who that is, you can look him up on, you know, in the Catholic Encyclopedia. St. John of the Cross... Uh, was a little bit younger than Teresa of Avila. He was born in 1542, died 1591. He was, a tra he was trained in Thomas Aquinas at the University of Salamanca. And when you read his account of the spiritual life, uh, like the ascent of Mount Carmel, or the dark night of the soul, or the living flame of love, uh, you immediately see that he's using Thomistic categories to analyze the sort of reality that Teresa of Avila is describing. Okay, but uh, it's helpful to recognize that this was a phenomenon, you know, these Carmelite, Greek Carmelite saints, that came out of 16th, 16th century Catholicism, and Spain in particular, where there was a great interest in mystical phenomena, and where the, the, you might say, the objective structure of the spiritual life, that is the theology and philosophy of the soul, and that of how God interacts with the soul in the spiritual life, this basic structural explanation, which is given by Aquinas, this was just known rather well and was presupposed by them. But today, when that theological explanation is not very well known, you can read them and then get confused. So it really helps to understand, you might say, the kind of foundational structure that we have both from philosophy and theology for this spiritual theology. So that's sort of what I'm trying to uh, trying to work on. Okay, so what is a better approach to understanding this sort of spiritual reality? I think we need some key points from St. Thomas Aquinas, and a lot of this will probably be generally familiar to you, and uh, if, if, I mean, since I'm at the University of Dallas, I think I can presuppose a lot. Um, so if that is wrong, you can ask about it in the questions, or you can just look at me with a very quizzical look as I'm talking and I'll try to explain a little more. The first point is about God. It's important to start with God. God is infinitely above us. We are creatures infinitely below God. So God in himself cannot be directly known by us in this life. Now, I hope that's something you've heard before and perhaps have even studied in philosophy or in theology. Aquinas thinks, and he teaches very beautifully, that we can know with philosophical certitude 
that God exists because we can look at his effects in the world and reason back from them to infer that there must be a cause of those effects, a cause that is not caused, like uh, a first being, an uncaused causer, an unmoved mover, etc. But our knowledge of God is always going to be limited because we will not be able to know what God is. We can know that he is, but we cannot know what he is in this life. Now, why is it important to start with this point? Because often the descriptions that we find in the, the lives of the great saints is a description of something that is paradoxically light and dark at the same time. And this is best explained by this truth about God. We will experience a knowledge of God insofar as God lifts us up to know something of who he really is as something that surpasses what our minds are really capable of grasping or comprehending in this life. And so it is right to describe it as having a certain element of darkness, even though, in fact, it is principally a mystery of light. But it is a light that is too bright for our minds. So a little bit like when you, you look at a light that is too bright for you, it sort of dazzles your eyes and it, it prevents you from seeing clearly. It's something on the order of this. Now, Aquinas does think that we can know something about God, and his teaching here is also really important for helping us understand, say, this later Carmelite spiritual tradition. There are three classic ways of knowing God that Aquinas walks you through. The first he calls the way of causality, and I've just been talking about that. We see effects in the world. We infer that God is the cause. Okay, so we go from effects back to some knowledge of the cause, but we don't know what the cause is exactly. Okay, the second way is the way of eminence. This means we make some affirmation about God, a positive statement about God, and then we say, well, anything we say positively about God is, is exceeded in God vastly beyond what we understand. So we say, like, God is good, but he's not good like a chocolate bar is good or like a summer day is good. Uh, he's good because he's the cause of goodness. He's good in a way that is super eminently more good than any of those things. Okay, but the third way, which is the one that I want to say just a few more words about, is called the way of negation. In Latin, it's the via remotionis, the way of removal. Or you could say the negative path. And this begins to sound a little bit like John of the Cross. So let me read you a text from Aquinas' Summa Contra Gentiles, where you begin to get, I think, a good theological explanation of taking a negative path to know the God who is. So listen to what Aquinas says. This is a quotation from uh, the first book, chapter 14. In the study of the divine substance, the negative path is required above all else. The divine substance surpasses in its immensity all the forms that our intellect reaches, and thus we cannot grasp it by knowing what it is. We can, however, get a knowledge about it, a certain kind of knowledge, by coming to know what it is not. And we will draw nearer to that knowledge as through our understanding, we can discard more things from God. So the spiritual significance of this, that's the end of the quotation. The spiritual significance is that we can grope further and further into the mystery of God as we remove from him everything creaturely in our understanding. So we need to know that God is good, but he's not good like a creature is good. He's good in a different way. And he is powerful, but he is not powerful like a creature is powerful. So everything creaturely about our understanding, for example, of the words good or power, we now have to purify 
out of our minds so that we can begin to ascend into what God is. But of course, we don't actually know what he is. What we're doing is we are excluding more and more of what he is not. This is a real spiritual and mental asceticism that calls for us to abandon idols that we set up in our spiritual lives, and we're all susceptible of doing that, having my own idea of God be what I think he really is. Setting aside those idols, throwing them away, renouncing the constructions and ideas of our own minds so that we can ultimately rest only in God who is behind every creature and above and beyond every creature. So we want to know God who is to our creaturely minds unknown. And that sounds paradoxical, but I think that's exactly what Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross are getting at. Listen to what Aquinas says in it. He actually brought this up in a sermon, and we have a copy of that sermon, about the spiritual meaning of this way of negation. So here's another quotation from Aquinas. No path is as fruitful for coming to know God as that which proceeds by removal or separation. For then God is perfectly known when we know that he is above everything that can be thought of. And so we read about Moses, who was very familiar with God, insofar as it is, can be granted to a human being in this life, that he approached God in a cloud and a thick mist. Meaning, by getting to know what God is not, Moses arrived at a knowledge of God. And this way of separation, Aquinas continues, is what we understand in the word holy. Because it is generally taught that what is holy is what is pure. And what is pure is what is separated from others. Okay, so this is the goal of our minds, is to know God, but that requires a kind of intellectual asceticism. And what is more, there's the human reality that when we know something by faith, there remains a certain dissatisfaction of our minds. And Aquinas makes this point very beautifully when he talks about the virtue of faith. And what is his point there? How does your mind normally work? You see a tree. You are able to grasp something of the nature of the tree as you bring the, as your mind draws out of the image of the tree that your senses have constructed and understands it. There's something for your mind to go to work on there in understanding the tree. But when we're talking about God, what is your mind going to work on? Only what God has spoken to you about himself. And often in very enigmatic, sometimes poetic ways. So you can know by faith that what God is telling you is true, but you will never see the reason why it is true in the same way that you can understand what a tree is. This means that your mind, which wants to, to descend into the particulars and see why they're the case, isn't able to do this in the realm of faith. Because in faith, you, you know something about God by believing what he tells you, but without seeing the reason why it's true. And the mind naturally wants to know why it's true, and so it's going to keep spinning. That wheel is still spinning. It's like on your computer, you know, when you get the little daisy wheel spinning. It's still spinning there, and it's trying to get to the bottom of it, but in principle, it's not going to be able to. And that leaves you with, a, or can leave you with a certain dissatisfaction, or even a certain sadness, and that's also something you find in Teresa of Avila and John on the Cross, that 
the, the faith that gives us to know God leaves us in a kind of darkness, and that darkness can even be the cause of a kind of interior sadness when we realize how far we are from God, even when we know him by grace. Okay, that's the first general point. It's about knowing God and the nature of faith. Second general point that I want to make that it's part of the structure of the spiritual life, which is really helpful to understand like how to work out uh, your, you know, your path towards God, is some understanding of grace. And this, I think, is generally not well understood today um, in, among Catholics and, and much, in a much wider circle. So let me just say a few words about Aquinas' theology of grace and what it means for your spiritual life and your prayer life. So grace in general for Aquinas is divided into, well, there's many ways to divide it up, but two primary divi divisions, actual graces and habitual or sanctifying graces. So an actual grace involves God moving you, activating you in a particular moment. So perhaps you're walking by the chapel and God moves you to think, oh, I could go in and say a prayer right now. Or, Father's hearing confessions right now. I know Father Nobles is often in the chapel hearing confessions, so we'll make a little plug for that. He's in there in the confessional waiting for some of you to come in. And you walk by and you think, yeah, you know, I could go to confession right now. Maybe you do go into confession. That movement of God to move you to Go into the confessional and make a good confession is an actual grace. God is moving you in a particular moment. Okay, that's one kind of grace. But there's another very important category of grace, and that's called habitual or sanctifying grace. This is not a punctual grace. It's rather a stable grace that you possess as a quality of your soul, Aquinas says. So in general, habitual or sanctifying grace is the elevation of your human nature to share in the divine nature. Now, that's very exalted. It's kind of heady stuff. We could have a whole uh, session just on that. We don't have time for that right now. Let me just quote the scripture passage that is the foundation for this teaching. 2 Peter 1.4. We read in the second letter of Peter that God has granted, us, granted to us his precious and very great promises that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become sharers in the divine nature. Sharers in the divine nature. So the Christian tradition has reflected a lot on that line. It seems to be part of the promise of Christianity that you can become a sharer in the divinity, which is a wild and outlandish idea and one that the ancient pagans would have absolutely rejected as way too exalted for us, like we're way too low in the hierarchy of being to think that we could be made gods. But this is actually what Christianity believes Jesus has come to do. God became man so that man could become God. And that is offered to you to become a sharer in the divine nature. Now we need some distinctions and qualifications there to understand uh, what that means to say that man becomes God. But it really is true, and Aquinas takes that teaching extremely seriously. Sanctifying grace, or habitual grace, when it's infused into your soul, and if you are a baptized Catholic, you received at your baptism that gift of sanctifying grace. And if right now you are sitting in this auditorium in a state of sanctifying grace, we are talking about you having this habitual gift that gives you a share in the divine nature. And this grace in your soul unfolds into your powers. What are your principal powers? I won't call on anybody, but maybe some of you know, if you've taken your philosophy seriously, at least according to Aristotle and Aquinas, your, your powers would be, for example, your intellect and your will. Of course, you have other powers like that. You have sense powers, so forth. Um, you have intellectual powers. But the intellect and will 
are the highest powers in us. And when grace infuses them with its power, then you acquire these supernatural virtues. You get infused moral virtues, prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. But above all, you get the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, which are perfections of your powers of intellect and will, making them capable to be directed to God. Okay, this is extremely important, and Aquinas thinks that in virtue of those, those theological virtues, especially faith and charity, we can find the effect in us of the Son and the Holy Spirit dwelling in the soul. So uh, to summarize a huge part of Aquinas' teaching, the Holy Trinity becomes present in your soul when you receive sanctifying grace. And this is not just reserved for Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross or Padre Pio or a mystic. It is given to every single Christian who is in the state of sanctifying grace. So you have this life in you, at least habitually, that is operating in the background, right now, if you are in the state of grace. That's what the state of grace means. Now, the goal of the Christian life is that those virtues in us would not remain just in the background, but that we would bring them more and more into action so that they would more and more shape all of the things that we do in our lives. And that is the work of the Christian life. There's a great short little book by a Carthusian. The Carthusians are a very austere monastic order called Love and Silence. And it makes this, this point very beautifully. It's very Thomistic. And the point is simply this. Um, you know, God is simple. He's very simple in himself. He's absolutely one. We are complicated. The Christian life is about the, the human being being drawn into God, which means being made simple. So actually, the Christian life is very simple. And I've just told you what it consists in. Living out the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And of course, under them, the moral virtues, prudence, temperance, justice, fortitude. If you do that, more and more, all the time, you will be on the trajectory to God in a very powerful way. So it's actually very simple. That doesn't make it easy. In fact, often it's not easy. And the reason it's not easy is because we are complicated. We are complicated principally because of our sins. So the first thing you have to do in your spiritual life is to get rid of the sins. And of course, that's easier said than done. But it's not impossible to understand how to do that. Most of us know on some level what we need to do to get rid of the sins. We may say, I don't know if I can do it or I don't know how I'm going to actually follow through on it all. But that's the first thing. If you don't get rid of the sins, you'll never be able to climb this path to God. And then when you've begun to get rid of the sins, you need to start activating those virtues more. More acts of faith. More acts of love more acts of hope in God. And if you do that, you will be on the trajectory to God. In fact, Aquinas thinks that this culminates in the perfection of heaven when you will have these virtues in their perfection. In fact, there, you won't have faith anymore because it will be replaced by vision. You will not know God in a dark way. You will know him by seeing him face to face but you will still love him and place your final end in him. So the Christian life in the end is very simple. It's a matter of us becoming simple so that we can live it out. So in a certain way, when we're talking about John on the cross and Teresa of Avila, what we're talking about is an account based on their personal experiences 
of how to walk this path of getting rid first of sins, then of all the imperfections that remain in the soul because of our attachment to created things so that we can live a life that is purely a life of faith, hope, and love. Okay, here I need to add another point. So this would be the third major point. So we talked about the unknowability of God, the structure of grace, and therefore the structure of the spiritual life, which is simply the life of the theological virtues. And now we should talk about Christ, who is the pattern of our spiritual life and the cause and source of it. So God the Father sends his word, his son, into the world to assume a human nature and fills Jesus Christ as man with the Holy Spirit. So you have the Holy Trinity right there in that picture. Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, does all of the things that we read about in the Gospels, and his life culminates in his suffering and death on the cross, after which he's exalted, raised from the dead, pours out the Holy Spirit, and ascends to the Father. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is given to the world through Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. That pattern is like the pattern of grace as it comes to us. So as we receive this sanctifying grace that I was talking about a minute ago, we receive it from Christ and through his sacred humanity, which means through the pattern of his life. And that means we receive it through the pattern of the cross. So the cross will always be the pattern of the Christian life. Now, why? Why is that? Why couldn't God have done this a different way? Sure would have been easier, or so it seems to us, right? Why did the cross have to be a part of it? And Aquinas' answer to that, the great Christian tradition's answer to that is, the cross is there not because God wanted there to be suffering, but because of our sin. Sin is the reason for the cross. And those who crucified our Lord were sinners who willed his death. And he was willing to accept even that out of love for us. So the cross is an icon of God's love because God is showing us that he will go even that far to draw us back to himself. But of course, sin is not only in the world in the past or only in other people. It's not only in the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus. So if you didn't know this already, sin is in each of us. First of all, because of our fallen nature that we've inherited from our first parents. And secondly, because of all the actual sins that we have each individually committed. And that means that the cross has to be part of each of our lives too. That is the way out of sin. And it does involve a kind of death. A death to self, a death to sin. It's not a death in the absolute sense because it's followed by the resurrection, by the power of God's grace. So God does not let us pass through death if we are following Christ. He will not let us pass through death and have it end there. But we do have to pass through a kind of death in order to come to the joy of the resurrection. And that means that the Christian life must be marked by this kind of purification and renunciation. We can even, when we are moved by love, love for God and love for neighbor, we can even make sacrifices that will be helpful to our neighbors. And of course, Jesus does this in the most supreme way on the cross because he is completely without sin, but endured its shame for our sake. So, what does that mean, practically speaking, in the spiritual life? It means that we need to go through some purgation if we are going to grow spiritually. 
And that's often not like the first thing that attracts people to the faith. Like, oh, great, you know, now I get to give up things. Um, but it comes as a, as a piece of good news when we begin to realize that it's these things that are keeping me from going higher. These things that are stopping me from receiving what God wants to give me. So classically, Aquinas and many other spiritual writers after him, uh, before and after him, talk about the spiritual life as having three phases or three stages. The purgative stage or way, this is where you renounce sin, add the habits and attitudes that lead you to sin. Then the illuminative way, this is where you begin to see more clearly who you really are, having gotten rid of the sins, and also the way of the virtues begins to really grow in you. These are the good habits by which you start traveling towards God. And you begin to see more clearly even your imperfections that have to be rooted out. And then finally, the third stage would be the, you know, the stage of perfection. This is what the great saints talk about, about being united to God kind of perfective union with God. Sometimes you read about it as, like Teresa of Avila talks about it as the spiritual marriage or the transforming union. This is like the pinnacle of the spiritual life, but it needs to be begun with some renunciations, with some purifications. And this is the only way for us to be able to go higher. Now, how do we, how do, we do these purifications? Um, John of the Cross has a lot to say about that. But rather than focusing so much on John of the Cross on this point, I'd like to bring in a text from Aquinas, which I think is wonderfully helpful. This is from his Summa, the um, Prima Secundae, the first part of the second part, question 61, article 5, where he explains that we need the virtues in order to detach us from creaturely things and regulate our love for creaturely things so that we can direct them to God. So listen to what Aquinas writes here, and it's, it almost sounds like it could be written by John of the Cross. He says, some virtues are virtues of human beings who are on their way and tending to a divine likeness. That's the whole nature of the spiritual life. We're trying to become more and more like God. And these are called, Aquinas writes, purgative virtues or purifying virtues. Virtutes purgatoriae. And what are they? He goes on to explain. Thus, prudence, by contemplating the things of God, counts as nothing, all things of this world, and directs all the thoughts of the soul to God alone. Temperance, so far as nature allows, neglects the needs of the body to direct you to God. Fortitude prevents the soul from being afraid of neglecting the body and rising to heavenly things. And justice consists in the soul giving a wholehearted consent to follow the way to God proposed to it. So that's actually beautiful. What Aquinas is saying is that as you grow in the virtues, what are you doing? You are learning how to adjust your love for the things of this world under the love of God to direct all your actions in this world so that it will be configured to the love of God. And those virtues are purgative because it allows you to get rid of the love for creatures that are incompatible with moving towards God. So that means recognizing the truly prudent person is able to recognize that everything in this world is changing and ultimately going to die off. It's ultimately going to perish. There is no wealth you can really hold on to in this life. So the truly prudent person sees all of the wealth of this world in relation to God 
and recognizes that if you can get yourself into heaven by giving away things in this life, that's actually a steal. That's a really good deal. It's like a great interest rate on your investment. <laughs> Way better than you get on the stock market. And temperance now allows you to recognize, notice that Aquinas does not say that you need to like stop eating all food that you find pleasant. That's not what he says. You don't have to like, um, uh, well, on old televisions, they used to have a knob, the color knob, and you could like turn it way down to make like the color go back to black and white. You know, the spiritual life is not like turning the color knob all the way down so that your life becomes gray and tasteless. That is not what Aquinas is talking about. Temperance allows you to recognize what you really need and what, you, what may be, in fact, distracting you from God. Now, the life of virtue is going to make all the flavors, all the colors really pop because now they're going to be rightly ordered under God. That's actually one of the great secrets to the spiritual life is that you think you're giving all these things up and God then gives them back to you in a wonderful way, now purified. So not like you think about them in a worldly way, but he gives them back to you in a wonderful way. And the flavors, the colors, they're a lot better. The delights of the spiritual life are way better than any delights that this world can give you. Fortitude. This prevents you from being afraid of all of these renunciations because it can be frightening. You think, uh-oh, like I have a whole bunch of things that I have on my to-do list. Like here's my bucket list. Are all, is God going to take all these things off my bucket list? Uh, and that could be a frightening thing. You think that if you give your life to God, you're really going to die. Uh, but the truth is you're not going to die. Um, actually, he's going to give you more life. And what does Jesus promise? He says, anyone who has given up husbands or wives or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold in this life and eternal life in the world to come. It's my experience that God really does repay with that hundredfold. Now, it requires faith, hope, and love to, to embrace that promise and then infused fortitude to actually let go of the thing that I've been holding on to for so long. But that's what the infused virtue of fortitude does for us. It purifies us so that we can let go of the things that are keeping us from God. I could give you lots of examples, I mean, even from my own life, of the way that I've received a hundredfold. Uh, one would be the fact that I'm standing here talking to all of you today. Because, you know, I grew up in Seattle, did not know the riches of Texas. Uh, so here I am. I'm hopeful that uh, tonight at the dinner, we're going to have some queso. I mean, this is like, you know, this is part of the hundredfold. I never would have had it. Um, even more radically, you know, I, I used to um, save up my money every summer when I was working before I became a Dominican to take a trip to Europe. And when I entered the order, I thought, okay, well, I'm giving that up. Last trip to Europe, like it's all in the, all in the rear view mirror now. And then, you know, after my formation, the order sent me to study in Switzerland for four years. And I, you know, was a short train ride away from all of the greatest capitals of Europe and saw more of Europe than I ever would have if I had stayed working in the world. And of course, you see it in a different way. Uh, I didn't see it with a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of money in my pocket. Um, but I got to stay in these Dominican priories, which are in the historic center. And they're often like these incredible locations, um, you know, and you show up and it's like your family is waiting for you there. Just like I was received by the brethren here at the University of Dallas. I showed up and it's like, uh, I have brothers who live basically on campus. It's super convenient, way better than a hotel room um, and a lot cheaper too. And, <laughs> and this is the way God gives to us. Okay, so we need to be purged of these negative things. Okay, let me say a few more words and, and we're getting to the end here. Um, let me say something about uh, detachment and, um, and prayer. So sometimes you read in John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila about their contemplative prayer. 
And it can sound uh, intense and also very beautiful, very high. It can help to understand, like, how are they describing this? I mean, they're describing a spiritual experience, but what is, what is really going on in the soul? It can be helpful to understand that so that we can try to move in that direction in our own prayer life. So we do need to let go of things of this life in order to ascend to God. And we can even begin ascending to God as we pray to God in our, you know, in our moments of prayer, say in the chapel. So renouncing sin is, of course, going to be a necessary precondition for this. If your heart is attached to sin, your mind is not going to rise to God very easily. But even when you have renounced the sin, have you ever had the experience of like trying to pray and finding all kinds of other thoughts all of a sudden in your mind? Where are these thoughts coming from? Well, you could say, oh, well, it's the devil tempting me, and someday it could be the devil sometimes, but it's better probably not to go to that explanation and just say, well, it's probably from your, your fallen human nature that is still attached to a lot of these other things, and your mind has a very hard time letting go of them and trying to seek out God. Now, remember what we said about God before. God cannot be known directly in this life. So you're not going to find God directly by looking at creatures. You will find him indirectly, perhaps, but you have to be aware that the creatures are not God and that God is behind or above them. So you can think of your soul, this is a real simplification, you can think of your soul in this way as having like an outer circle and an inner circle. The outer circle is what we normally use. Think the, the most outward circle would be like your sense powers, which are reaching out to the sensible world around you. And then you have the interior sense powers, which are generating images in your mind from those sense, sense experiences, those sense impressions. And then you have the intellect. Uh, so you have the imagination, the memory, the reason, your reasoning will go from one thing to another in its process of reasoning. It will take something that you know something about, like, say, example, the tree that you, you encounter in the world, and it will go to work on the tree, trying to understand what it is that you've got before you. All of these are maybe working a little inward, going from the outward senses to the more innermost reality of a thing. But the most interior part of the soul, Aquinas calls the passive intellect. This is not where the intellect is going around shining its light on things and trying to work out what they are. This is the power of understanding itself. And he calls it passive because it's receiving what is understood. And he thinks that this is the, the most that the part of our soul that is most like the angel's intellect, it's higher. Now, it is possible to encounter God in various ways through what you might say are in the outer circle. But God also sometimes makes him known more and more in the innermost circle. And when that happens, and you can't generate that experience, God has to give it to you. When that happens, you know, without reflecting discursively on it, without setting your mind to work, like trying to grasp what it is in front of you, you, you know because you receive an understanding of something of God. So the soul loves and delights in God without making further acts. So this seems to be something important in what we could call a contemplative mode of prayer. And for Aquinas, contemplation does not mean mystical experience or visions. Actually, visions are not a part of contemplation. 
because that's more the outer circle. Contemplation means gazing. Gazing on God. Gazing on God who is present in your soul. And if you're in the state of grace, God is present in your soul. Now, I'm not saying you do some kind of Zen Buddhist meditation that just remains in yourself and looks at you. That would be a huge mistake. But in the highest part of your soul, God is present. And when God gives grace, Aquinas says, he gives it to that highest part of the soul. And it comes from that highest part and works its way down into the outer circle, you might say. So sometimes it happens that the inner circle and the outer circle are not really in sync. In fact, that's often the case with many of us. So what's happening in the outer circle? You've got lots of other thoughts, lots of distracting thoughts. Maybe you have passions. Maybe you even have disordered passions. They're trying to intrude on that inner circle. They can be very insistent. And if, you know, eventually, if you're living a life of grace, those things are going to calm down and become more, more harmonious. That's part of the growth in the spiritual life is that, you know, as you go on in the spiritual life, those passions become better ordered. But even then, they can still intrude into that inner circle, which is really the gaze on God himself. So it can be expected that before long, even when God grants some moment of real intuition that he is there, that the outer circle will begin to pull us away from that. The memory brings images. The imagination may get you set off on some kind of fantasy about the future. The reason wants to understand and go to work on what you're experiencing. But all of this can be a distraction from God who is trying to draw you to himself. So, it does not mean that the spiritual life needs to destroy the outer circle so that you can just live in the inner circle. The fact of the matter is, it's very hard to live all the time in the inner circle. And it requires that God give you that gift. But when God does give it to you, you should prize it for what it is. And with respect to the outer circle, you want to get the virtues working there more and more so that that zone of your life is rightly ordered to permit you to have an inner life, which is a life that can be interiorly attentive to God more and more, actually, all the time. So you are not just habitually in a state of grace, but you are actually more and more making acts of faith, hope, and love. And if you are doing that, if you get the natural part of your life in sync with the supernatural part of your life, then you will be on the path towards God and you will begin to experience the wonders and delights that God reserves for those who grow close to him. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.